I'm going to begin with a series of questions and pictures that are going to grow increasingly more uncomfortable and offensive. Uh, but I'm going to ask that you stick with me through this and trust that there is a good point to where I'm going that ties into the text of Jonah 3. Let's put the first slide up here. And I don't want you to answer these questions out loud. I want you to think about this. Who of these people or kinds of people are least likely to accept Jesus as their Savior? We've got a goth cheerleader, someone who lives a transgender lifestyle, perhaps a religious leader from another religion or even a pharisaical Christian in name. Who's the least likely to accept Christ? Let's go to our next slide. Who's the least likely to accept Jesus as their savior? Kid? A teenager? Someone in their middle age? Perhaps a senior? Who would it be? Uh, the next slide is going to be offensive. Please stay with me. There's a purpose behind these questions. Who's the least likely to accept Jesus as their savior? What ethnicity? What nationality? Last slide, this one the most offensive at all. Who's the least likely to accept Jesus as their savior? <laughs> We're gonna lighten the mood just a little bit there at the very end. Very few of us would come right out and say, I don't believe that that person or that that kind of person can get saved. Very few would actually say that. Um, very few would be open to admit their prejudices against somebody else, whether it's somebody in their, their age bracket, whether it's somebody from a certain nationality, whether it's somebody that's, that's living a certain lifestyle. And yet sometimes our actions reveal something unpleasant about our true feelings and about our beliefs. The way that you mentally answered those questions probably reveals something about you one way or the other, for better or worse. In many ways, the book of Jonah has been very challenging and convicting. This morning, we're going to see it challenge and convict our understanding of evangelism and missions, especially in application towards those who may or may not be able to get saved. It might convict some of our stereotypes, some of our prejudices, some of our racist tendencies. If Jonah were to answer some of those questions, I'm sure that he would say, the Ninevites. The Ninevites are least likely to get saved. In fact, Jonah might even go so far as to say, the Ninevites should not get saved. Not just can't, but should not get saved. As offensive as those opening slides were, there would be an even more extreme question that I could ask with them. Who shouldn't be saved? Who doesn't deserve the gospel? I want us to chew on those things as we come into the text in Jonah 3 this morning. And we're going to see how all that comes together in this passage. We're going to hear the word of God from Jonah 3. We have some ushers that have Bibles. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. We're happy to give you one. Our gift to you if you need one to keep. Quick recap, Jonah 1 started off by saying, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
But Jonah rose and he fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And we know from the story in Jonah chapter 1, he goes down to Joppa, he buys a boat, and he heads to the opposite side of the world. The Lord hurls a great storm and, and churns up the sea, and the pagan sailors cry out to their gods, but of course, their gods can't do anything, can they? Eventually, Jonah shares that he's running from the Lord, from the true Lord, and the sailors reluctantly toss him overboard, and then they convert. Remember Jonah 1, 16? It says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. While the sailors are worshiping the Lord, Jonah is sinking down to the bottom of the sea, and the Lord provides a great fish to come and swallow him. God keeps Jonah alive in the belly of this great fish for three days and three nights, and eventually Jonah prays a prayer. That's what we looked at last week in Jonah 2. Now, whether that prayer was rightly rooted in Scripture or not, God is a merciful God, and God heard and God responded. Out of his great mercy, God saves Jonah again, and we left off with this verse last week, chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, as I mentioned last week, everything in this book obeys God better than Jonah does. The wind, the sea, the fish, the sailors, everything obeys except for Jonah. The question is, will this whole experience in the belly of this fish change anything in this reluctant prophet? Has God's provision of a storm and a great fish changed Jonah? Let's take a look at the beginning of chapter 3, Jonah 3, verse 1 to 3. The Bible says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now this might sound a little familiar to you if you've been following us since the beginning of this book. This should remind us of the opening verses of the book. It's almost word for word, verses 1 to 3 of Jonah chapter 1. There are a few differences, and those differences are really significant. So I want to highlight a few of them to kind of bring out the meaning of the text. Look at this first comparison slide up here. The yellow words, or actually the blue words that are highlighted there, show the difference between the texts. So the first time around, we're introduced to Jonah as the son of Amittai. And remember, Amittai, that word means faithfulness. Son of faithfulness. Well, by chapter 3, we're pretty sure he's not at least in name, the son of faithfulness. So in chapter 3, the author kind of rubs it in and reminds us he's not a son of faithfulness. He's not a very faithful prophet, so he drops that phrase and adds in this word, or this phrase, the second time. Remember back when you were a kid and your mother said this to you? I'm telling you this for the second time, clean your room. Well, for me, it was like the hundredth time or maybe the millionth time, clean your room. Have you ever wondered why does God give Jonah a second chance? I mean, there were other prophets available at that time. We know of other prophets that were available at that time. Why does God keep using Jonah? Well, we can only guess at that answer, but I suspect it's for two main reasons. First, God giving Jonah a second chance is absolutely in line with the character of God. God is a merciful, loving God. He gives the sailors a second chance. He gives the Ninevites a second chance. He gives Jonah a second chance. The fact that God did not give up on this prophet right away shows us who God is. Now, second, I think Jonah resembles Israel in many ways. 
Jonah is just like the people of God as a whole. Remember, this book wasn't written to the Ninevites. This book was written to an Israelite audience, which means that they should see themselves in this prophet. Jonah's tendencies to disobey, Jonah's tendency to not want to bring God's word to a sinful people, that's the tendency of the Israelites. And church, as I've said before, that's our tendency as well, if we're willing to admit it. We are all little Jonas. It's an ugly admission, but it's a true admission. We are no better oftentimes than this prophet. Now we're going to think about that again in a few minutes, and especially again next week. But look at the comparison with verse 2. We'll put another slide up here with a couple different colors. This one, there are actually two major changes between what we see in the first chapter and the third chapter. Let's look at that um, darker blue highlight first. This time around, God drops the line, for their evil has come up before me. It's not that Nineveh stopped being evil. It's not that they all of a sudden turned good. But the author wants us to focus on Jonah's newfound obedience and the word of God. So that line is exchanged for the message which I tell you. In other words, God is saying, preach exactly what I tell you to preach. That's the duty of every prophet, by the way, isn't it? That's the duty of every prophet, the baseline expectation of God's people or God's messengers, even any preacher for that matter. Preach the word. Preach the Bible. Say to the people what God wants you to say according to the word of God. The best preachers are, are not the ones that are creative, always bringing some kind of new element or new twist to the, pa the passage. The best preachers are the ones that are bringing the message of the word of God from the pulpit. I am at my best when you see me the least. So God emphasizes to Jonah, you are going to preach my message. Now, I also have something to say about the stuff highlighted up on top in the purple there. But this one's a little bit trickier. Because in this one, you don't actually see the change in the ESV translation. But it's important to know the Hebrew text has a very, very subtle change here. And if I were to give an ultra-literal translation, here's what I would say. Here's how I would translate this. In verse 2 of chapter 1, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And then in verse 2 of chapter 3, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out to it. This is the MSV translation, the Murawski Standard Version up here on the screen. The Hebrew has a very, very subtle change in the preposition. In fact, it's only the change of one letter in the Hebrew language, but it makes a big difference. It's a change from a word alaha to elaha. You can almost not even tell the difference. The first time, God says, call out against that city. Most definitely a negative mission. Jonah is charged to go out and call out judgment upon the Ninevites, to make her aware of her sin and to condemn it. The second time, God says it a little bit differently, call out to her. I can call out to you for any number of reasons, can't I? Maybe I need your help. Maybe I need your attention to show you something. Maybe I do need to reprimand you. The statement is a little bit more ambiguous. But the movement from call out against her to call out to her gives us the first major hint that God's plans for this city might be something more than just a message of judgment. God has something more in plan for the Ninevites right here. It's a little bit of foreshadowing in one single letter of the Hebrew text. Then we have verse 3. Verse 3, chapter 1, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. 
And verse 3 in chapter 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. So here we finally have it. In the very beginning of the book, he arises to flee. He's running from God's word. And here he is obeying according to God's word. It's a total change from where we were in chapter 1. Apparently that fish did something to this prophet. And as we're seeing, there were hints along the way that, that maybe, just maybe, God's got something more in store for Nineveh than just a message of judgment. So let's keep on reading, starting the second half of verse 3. The text says this, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. This verse highlights the importance of Jonah's visit to Nineveh. It was an exceedingly great city. The Bible even says it was a, a city, a three days journey. That doesn't mean it took Jonah three days to, to get there. Probably took him a month or two, according to uh, him walking from one place to the other, 500 miles away. But three days journey means it took at least three days visit to really get to see this city. Uh, you want to plan on staying for three days if you're going to go visit the Ninevites. My wife and I this summer took a trip to uh, Charlottesville, South Carolina. Uh, just Charlottesville, I think that's where we went. I'm Charlotte, right? That's what it's called? I knew there was something wrong with that statement. <laughs> Charlotte, South Carolina. And, and it was just the two of us, just one evening. We left the kids. It was great. I mean, they weren't there with us. Um, if, if you're into shopping and history, it might have been a three-day trip for you. Uh, for us, it was like a three-hour trip, and that was it. Um, we were there, we were gone, and we really en enjoyed the dinner that we had afterwards. Nineveh was the kind of place that you have to go and spend three days. It's, it's a great important city and Jonah the reluctant prophet prophet finally makes it there the question is what happens next verse 4 Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown now a day's journey probably means he traveled the city for that entire day preaching this message and the message is quite simple isn't it eight words Eight simple words in English. There's actually only five words in the Hebrew text. Now, it's possible that that wasn't the full message that Jonah preached. I'm guessing he probably said a few other words than just the five words written down here. But knowing what we know about Jonah, it's also possible that he literally just said these five words. Either way, the way that the narrator presents this to us, he presents Jonah as doing the bare minimum in getting this message across. He travels 500 miles and says five words, at least what's recorded in Scripture. Again, he probably said more, but the way that it's written, Jonah isn't exactly going out of his way to convert these people. The message, too, is tantalizingly ambiguous. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There are, there are two ways to take that. The verb overthrown can be taken like it's translated here. Overthrown, as in Nineveh will be judged. It will be destroyed. God is going to judge this city in 40 days. That's the message that Jonah, I think, was hoping to convey. From his perspective, that's what he wanted to see. 40 days, and then that wicked city will finally get what they're due. But the word overthrown has a second meaning in Hebrew. It can also mean changed or turned around. For example, the same word, the same word, the same uh, stem is used in Exodus 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed 
that's the word, was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we've done? We have let Israel go from serving us. The word there is changed. So there's some ambiguity here in the, in the language. The narrator, I think, is kind of playing with us again a little bit. From Jonah's perspective, 40 days, Nineveh is going to be judged. But the word of God has him preaching a double, men, a double meaning here. In 40 days, Nineveh will be changed. It's going to be changed. So Jonah's five-word message is both a message of judgment and one that invites some kind of a change. Nineveh has a chance. They've got a choice in front of them. Judgment or change of heart. And wonder of wonders, look at how they respond. Verse 5 begins like this. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Just let that soak in for a moment. The people of Nineveh believed. This is the biggest miracle in this whole book. Never mind Jonah spending three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. Never mind God throwing a storm upon the sea and then quieting it down. This is the biggest miracle right here. The Ninevites believed. The Ninevites believed. Remember when I spent time that first sermon showing those uncomfortable and graphic pictures about what the Assyrians did to their captives? The more we understand how wicked the Ninevites were, the greater this verse becomes. The Ninevites believed. I mean, let's be honest, they had every reason not to believe. A reluctant prophet, a foreigner from a nation that they hate, shows up and preaches a five-word message that is absolutely sure to offend. You thought I was offensive this morning? That's offensive. And we can't be sure of this, but my guess is Jonah was probably a bit unsightly as well as he got there. You would be too if you spent 72 hours in the belly of a, a fish. Who knows what this guy looked like? But the prophet, I mean, he comes, he dials it in, does the bare minimum, preaches an offensive message to a wicked people, and they believed. Church, the power of the word of God can save anyone. The gospel can break the hardest of hearts. There's a reason I showed those pictures at the beginning of this sermon. Jonah went in not only expecting this nation to get judged, but wanting them in his heart to get judged. If you were reading this for, for the first time, if you were an Israelite reading this for the first time about people whom you hate, you would have been Jonah too. But we've got to remember the power of the gospel, the effectiveness of the word of God. There is not a person too old or too young that is able to still accept Jesus. The gospel does not care about race. God is a God of all people groups. We are all made in the image of God. And if we were to answer those questions, the answer isn't all of them, but none of them. None of us are most likely to accept Christ as our Savior. We're all sinners by birth. The people that we think might never ever accept Jesus, sometimes those are the people that get saved. You're one of them. I couldn't help this week as I was reflecting on this, thinking about my, my great Uncle Eddie when considering the power of the gospel. My Uncle Eddie grew up in Jersey City. He had ties with the mafia. He ran in really, really bad circles. Uh, Fast Eddie, they called him. He was a bad dude. He stole an airplane once, drove it around until it ran out of gas. He was shot. He was stabbed, left for dead. He was a bad, bad guy. Then Uncle Eddie got cancer. 
I visited him at his deathbed, one last chance to share the gospel. My father called him and shared the gospel with him over the phone. And wouldn't you know it, Uncle Eddie accepts Jesus. He repents of his sin, he accepts the Lord as his savior, and God even granted him restoration from his terminal cancer. And for two years, Uncle Eddie went from, from nursing home to nursing home, sharing Jesus Christ with everyone that he could. Sharing the love of God that had transformed his soul. If God can save Uncle Eddie, God can save any one of us. If God can save the Ninevites, God can save any one of us. That means that we cannot hesitate to share the gospel with people, even people that we think might be furthest from God. The goth, the hypocritical religious leader, the Muslim, the person who struggles with their sexual identity, a person of another race, Young or old, black and white, they are all precious in God's sight, and the power of the word of God is able to change even the hardest of hearts. This book challenges our racial prejudices and sinful stereotypes. It magnifies the power of God working through the word of God. Think about the terrible evangelistic methods that Jonah used when he got there. Everything he does is wrong by the book. He probably wasn't good looking, probably reluctant, said very little, his message was offensive, he never attempted to be persuasive, and yet the Ninevites believed. So church, I have to ask you, who is it that in your life you are hesitating to share Jesus with? Who is your Ninevite? Your Uncle Eddie? Who have you written off as a lost cause? Who ought you to reach out to and share Jesus with right after church today? Look at the extent to which the Ninevites repent. Look at their change of heart, starting in verse 5. People of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. This is remarkable. It's revival among pagans. I would venture to guess that most churches in the world today haven't experienced this kind and this extent of repentance. Everyone calls upon the name of the Lord. Everyone, from the servants to the king. They all fast, that means they abstain from food, even from drink. It's a way of showing your humility and your destitution and crying out to the Lord. They put on sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was like a real scratchy material that you would never actually wear on a normal time. Maybe, maybe slaves or very, very poor people wore it at times, but never a king. You might wear it to a funeral to demonstrate how sorrowful you are. They act like they are at a funeral, and they are their funeral. They realize the wickedness in our hearts has led us to this certain death that is before us in 40 days. So everyone repents. Even the animals repent. Isn't that interesting? They force the animals to fast and to wear sackcloth and ashes. I think this is just another cheeky reference in Jonah. Everyone in this book, even the animals, obeys God's word better than the prophet. The king issues a proclamation 
calls for citywide times of prayer and repentance. Turn from your violence, he commands. Turn from your evil ways. Remember Jonah 1-2? God says their evil or wickedness has come up before me. Now the Ninevites recognize that evil and they decide we need to repent of this. This is the response of anyone truly repentant in their sins. What does it mean to repent other than to turn around and do the opposite of what you were doing? To turn from something and say, I I am done with that, I'm doing something new. You can't claim I've repented and then keep on doing it. Repentance is a total life change. And the king of Nineveh, he knows he's not promised grace here. He realizes that. He knows he hasn't earned God's mercy. He's unsure of what's going to happen next. Listen to his language. Who knows, he says. I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. If we turn from our ways, maybe God will turn from his ways and keep us alive. He doesn't know whether God will relent, and yet he repents anyway. They're, They're not converting just to get out of punishment. This, I believe, is an evidence of true conversion. They recognize their sin, and they change because of it. They realize, I deserve judgment. I need the mercy of God. Church, I've said it before, we are like Jonah. And now I'm going to say something even more offensive. We are just like Nineveh. We are the Ninevites. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we earn from our own sin is death, judgment, hell. We don't come to God telling him how much we've done or how good we are or or how religious we are. We come to him like the Ninevites here, destitute in our sin. We are dead in our sins, God. We deserve judgment. Save me, Lord. God, you owe me nothing, but please have mercy. And the Bible says that even though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's mercy, as we sung today, overcomes sin. God is a God of second chances, a merciful Savior. So look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. There's a lot of wordplay here, and I only have time to bring out a few things, but I want to bring out some things that might be helpful. When God saw what they did, when he saw that they turned from their evil way, God turned from what he was about to do. That word turn is used four times in just three verses. Verse 8, the king says, let everyone turn from his evil ways. Then verse 9, twice, he hopes that the Ninevites turning from their evil will cause God to turn from his decision. And then verse 10, God saw that the Ninevites turned, so he relented of the disaster that would come. The turning of the Ninevites motivates the turning of God. The word disaster, that word shows up a few times as well. It's translated differently because it has a very wide range of meanings. The Hebrew word is ra'ah. Ra'ah is not only used for disaster, it's the word that's used sometimes for evil. Chapter 1, verse 2, God says, their evil, their ra'ah has come up against me. It's translated evil way in verse 8 of this chapter. Let every person turn from his evil way. And then here in verse 10, because the Ninevites turned from their ra'ah, their evil ways, God relents of the ra'ah, the calamity that was to come upon them. It's not that God was going to do evil, 
but the narrator wants us to show the relationship between the evil of the Ninevites and the judgment that God was about to inflict on them. They deserved what they were about to get. Their ra'ah should have earned God's ra'ah. And yet God was merciful. Now before we consider some application, let's make sure we understand something theologically here. What does it mean that God relented? This word has brought some confusion, uh, and even depending on what translation you might have, there might be more confusion, because the King James Version, for instance, I, translates this, God repented. But, but God repenting brings out thoughts of God doing error or evil or something like that. So I don't think that's the best way to translate this word. God does not sin. He doesn't need to repent, but he does relent. He does change his mind from doing one thing and then somehow does another. And yet, at the same time, we know that God is omniscient. He's outside of time. He not only knows all things, he has planned and decreed all things. So how can we say that God truly relented or did something different than what he was originally going to do? I think it might be helpful for us to consider this was written from a human perspective. God was not surprised by the repentance of the Ninevites. He sent Jonah for a reason, right? Not only did he see this coming, but we can say that God had a work to do in the Ninevites' hearts to bring them to this place of repentance. So when the narrator tells us that God relented, that God changed his plans, this is coming from a human perspective. We were seeing God. He looked like he was going to do one thing, and then he decided to do another. Maybe consider the parent who wants to bless her child with ice cream after dinner. Well, to get to ice cream, she wants the kids to clean off the table. So she says, the table isn't cleared off. That must mean nobody really wants ice cream. I'm just going to dump it down the sink. Now, the reaction of her children, she knows it ahead of time, doesn't she? They're going to scramble over to that table. They'll clear it off real quick. And, of course, she's not going to dump that ice cream. I think that's a little bit like what we're seeing here. God knows what's about to happen. God knows all that's going to happen. He's planned it. He's decreed it. He said he's going to do one thing, destroy Nineveh, and then he does another. He saves Nineveh. The analogy is imperfect, but it might be helpful to the degree that it shows us the perspective of the narrator and the perspective of the Ninevites. Now, as we consider the application of this passage, I want to remind us of three things here. The book, well, before I get to the three things, let me remind you of one thing before that. The book was not written to the Ninevites, right? The book was not written to them. The book was written to an Israelite audience. It was written to instruct the people of God. What was the narrator trying to communicate to the people of God? So three things I want to have us think about as we leave here today. The compassion of God, the power of God's word, and the repentance of the Ninevites. Let's think about first the compassion of God. God is a God of mercy. Jonah did not earn God's mercy, and yet God gave him a second chance. Just like God gives many of us a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance, and so on. God loves the people he creates. We too should love the people that God creates. This book challenges our prejudices and racist tendencies. All people can receive God's compassion and love. Doesn't matter their color, their race, their age, their social status, their, their wealth, God loves all people, and we should too. A compassionate God should motivate compassion in our hearts. So God is a God of compassion. Number two, I want us to think about the power of God's word in this text. This point cannot be overemphasized. God's 
word prevails. As I mentioned, nothing Jonah did aligns with modern evangelistic strategies. He doesn't try to be persuasive. He doesn't try to be gentle or compassionate. And he is preaching to a people who are not exactly known for their open-mindedness. The Ninevites were wicked. If we were to pick anyone to not accept Jesus, the Ninevites would have been number one. And yet God's word prevails. The power of God worked. Even through five simple words, people's lives were changed. Church, don't underestimate the power of the word of God when you're witnessing to people. When you're sharing the gospel with somebody, if you share without using Bible verses, you have sheathed your most powerful tool. I've often asked, uh, had students ask me in, in the classroom, what do I do when I'm witnessing to somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible as the word of God? And my answer is, don't stop using it. If you have the sharpest, pointiest sword in the world, you don't point it away, put it away because someone else thinks it's dull. You use it, right? Now there's, there's methods and there's techniques to help them understand why this is the word of God, but I want to just emphasize that point that God's word has great power to pierce even the hardest of hearts. It does in Jonah, it can in our lives as well. God is a compassionate God. He has a powerful word. And number three, we want to think about the repentance of the Ninevites. Yes, God loves all people, but that does not mean that he desires for them to stay exactly where they are in life. Repentance follows true conversion. Or rather, maybe I could say it like this, repentance evidences true conversion. We cannot say that we have been changed by God if we are living the exact same way that we were living before we were changed by God. God doesn't um, use good works to earn our salvation, but our good works evidence our salvation. The Apostle Paul once said in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, but it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that we can't boast. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved by the grace of God. But you know what the very next verse says? Ephesians 2, 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works. That means that true Christians repent. They leave behind their sin. They turn away from what they were doing and they go towards a different route in life. If the Ninevites can do it for their sin, and we have the power of the Spirit of God within us, so we can do it as well. I hope what this passage has done is give you a greater heart of compassion for the people that are in this world a stronger confidence in the power of God's word to impact even those people that we might not think would accept Christ, and a deep desire to repent of our own personal sin as well. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's leave here believing that and preaching that to all the nations. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would convict our hearts of where we need to be convicted. And help us, Lord, as the Ninevites do here, to repent, to change our ways. If there are any unsightly ways in us, anything that's stopping us or hindering us from sharing the gospel with the people in our lives, rid us of that sin, Lord. God, I pray that we would be open to sharing the word of God with all people, no matter who they are, where they're coming from, what sin they're struggling with, 
And I pray, Lord, that we would see the power of the word of God at work. If the Ninevites can get saved, so can they, Lord. And I ask that you would grant us the blessing of being able to see it with our very eyes among us. You have saved us. What a miracle that is. Lord, may you now save others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.